This is a Federal News Network podcast. First, over the last few years, there has been a lot of discussion across the federal community around zero trust as a way to improve federal cybersecurity. But there was not one roadmap or a clear strategy from the Office of Management and Budget. With the release of OMB's draft zero trust strategy on Tuesday, agencies now have a common understanding of what it will take to make significant improvements to federal cybersecurity. Chris DeRussia is the federal chief information security officer. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about why this approach to zero trust gives every agency a path forward. Well, we're taking a phased approach organized around CIS's draft capability maturity model, defining set targets for agencies over a three-year period to achieve a certain first level of maturity across all the zero trust pillars. And that is, is, is by design to get agencies all moving in the right direction. And we'll support that with communities of practice, sharing best practices, um, surging technical support where possible, and really just sort of learning from this first phase for us of a multi-year journey that we, that we view this as. Now, as you all were working with CISA and other experts in the field, what was the discussions around what this should entitle? In, in, in because one can step back and say, this was a pretty big document. There's a lot here that agencies have to do. And is OMB and CISA trying to boil the ocean, right? Or are you trying to eat the apple in one bite? I'll go back to some old sayings that we've heard over the years, because there's a lot going on. What was some of the thinking about why you tried to go across these, I think it was five pillars? Our view is that A, agencies have been working on some level of zero trust implementation for years, even if we haven't been calling it that. So for example, identity access management, multi-factor authentication. But what we know now is that if we leave one of the pillars immature, that will be gapped and it's not gonna be an effective zero trust architecture. And although agencies are making a lot of progress on certain cones in certain areas, we find that there's several other areas which are far less mature uh, across the federal enterprise. And so, you know, for us, this is really about being clear what the priorities are, and that's what we're doing with public comment, making sure that we've got those initial priorities right and seeking that feedback and making adjustments if others who are further along on the journey have different lessons for us. But although it, it feels like a lot, and it, and it is, I think that it, it is clear to us that agencies are already on this path. We're just trying to bring it all together and make one clearly defined roadmap that we can all learn from together, benchmark progress on, and really kind of move out as one federal enterprise. Has OMB and or CISA done any sort of where are we now? Uh, I'm going to throw a little architecture at you. Any, any as is and, and to get to this to be? Certainly those assessments are going on. We're also trying to learn some lessons by leveraging the great opportunity we have with the billion dollars in the technology modernization fund. As you can imagine, a lot of the project proposals that have come in to the TMF have been around developing zero trust plans. And we're thinking that's a great opportunity to really um, use the oversight governance and help that we provide in the TMF structure to get some of those assessments of where some some big agencies and medium-sized agencies, small agencies are at currently and what what they're going to need to do to be successful in helping them on that journey so that we can use those lessons learned to help everyone else. You know, independently from that, CISA definitely is, you know, has a, has a team working on zero trust architecture and, and is getting a, a sense and feel for this with several agencies, aside from that TMF work. 
and they're a part of that that TMF work as well. So, so the short answer is uh, yes, and we're we're moving out on that uh, as is in two B assessments. And I know we could talk longer on the TMF stuff, but I'll move us back to the uh, draft strategy for zero trust. One of the things that as I've read through this, and you kind of brought this up earlier in our conversation, is a lot of these efforts are not new. They've been ongoing, like multi-factor authentication. You mentioned the single sign-on capabilities is another one that, that I stood out to me. Why do you think agencies maybe are better positioned today to address these challenges than they were, you know, again, five, 10 years ago when agencies tried to do this and, and just have not been as successful as maybe we would hope them to be? Look, you know, anytime you have to involve the end user in security, it's not easy. I, you know, we know this. And but I, I do believe that several things have changed over the last few years, and we believe this is the right time to make a very strong push on these capabilities. You know, what are the things that have changed? There's greater awareness now throughout enterprises and the entire cybersecurity community of the threats that are posed by having scattered or weak user account systems. And we also have seen that breaking into user accounts can give adversaries uh, the foothold that they need to deploy ransomware or engage in other malicious activity. So things like password reuse and phishing, you know, these are very, very common ways that adversaries are getting these footholds right now. And the phishing campaigns over the past five to 10 years have become a lot cheaper for adversaries and automated. So, you know, this is just an area where we've, we feel like we have no choice, um, but to make these the top priorities and push, push again, you know, on, on making progress. And also there's been developments in the technology for both single sign-on and multi-factor, which are great developments and uh, industry continue, continues to innovate here. You know, we talk about MFA, for example, our strategy touches on WebAuthn, and you know, that's an open standard. Now it's supported by every major operating system and, and, and mobile phone and can be used by agencies where PIV may not be the optimal choice. And I, I don't think we would have said that that was the case five years ago. So, so look, you know, we've got greater government leadership support and better understanding of these challenges, and we're just committed to working with agencies to get them the resources that they're going to need, and then where where applicable, the policy flexibility to get these priorities done. I'm glad you bring up the two things here: is partner with agencies and resources. I think one of the big challenges with any cyber EO, any any big challenge with any policy like this, is a lot of agencies look at this and say this is an unfunded mandate. I'm already spending so much money on cybersecurity, and now you're asking me to do more different. Two questions come to mind. One, is there a process that agencies are in the middle of right now to change their budget request for 2023? And secondly, is there some sort of process for agencies beyond the TMF and working capital funds, which I know you all call out in the strategy, to move money, to, to say, instead of spending it on X, we're going to spend it over here on Y, because now Y is a higher priority. Are those conversations happening? Because I think the funding issue is the biggest, probably, challenge of all of this. Well, we're definitely working closely with our resource management colleagues within OMB to make sure they understand you know, what we mean by the zero trust strategic priorities and the types of investments we're expecting to see from agencies. You know, in the plan, we've asked for 60-day uh, implementation and resource plans back from, back from agencies, which we plan to be heavily involved and ensure are, are the right investment choices. So, so again, though, that really is FY23 and forward. And we're moving fast and having some of those 
conversations now because the as you know the budget process is 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 definitely moving forward in earnest for 23. But look, you know, it is about reprioritization, Jason. I mean, there are finite resources. We know that. But we are moving towards a new security paradigm, and it's it's time for everyone to take a hard look at what they're doing, make sure that it is the right plan for now and forward, and make sure that it aligns to this new strategic direction that we're putting out. And that, that is our expectation. But but I'll tell you, I think most most agencies that we're interacting with so far are are very positive about that. And and as I, as you may have pointed out earlier, that you know, they're they're already sort of moving in this direction on their own. And we're just trying to make sure that it's a consistent standardized approach. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and what you can do to help them. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most 
was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. 
It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Ask anyone with a DWI if it was worth it. They'll tell you it's no holiday. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober. Drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety.